Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Worst in politics yet, it's the presidential election year. Are we at the point where it consumes almost every waking moment? No, I don't think quite yet. Maybe because politics are so volatile. And I feel like sometimes, unless you know people really well, you avoid talking about politics because you don't want a reason to dislike someone if you don't agree. Regardless, with the release of the first Great Lakes poll this week, which we'll talk about in a minute, the issues that will determine the election are definitely grabbing attention. Let's get started then. Welcome to another episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion and analysis of the news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, here with co-host Laura Johnston, who got to go skiing last weekend. Yay for fresh powder. It finally felt like winter, and I took my kids sledding too, but I kind of felt like I had seasonal whiplash since I was also at the boat show. I know we normally start with some chit-chat, Laura, but we've got a full plate this week, starting with, as you mentioned, the new Great Lakes poll. So let's get right to it. Let's bring in politics editor Jane Cahoon and our data-crunching expert, Rich Exner. Welcome to the podcast, Jane and Rich. Thanks for having us. Hi, guys. So we've got big trends to discuss on the political scene. The first of the new Great Lakes polls is out. At the Community Research Institute at Baldwin-Wallace University, a valued partner for Cleveland.com, launched a four-state poll this year with plans to survey four times before the November election. The first poll did exactly what we expected. It wowed us. We'll get to the horse race stuff in just a minute. The big finding here for me was the enormously important role that women could play in this election. Correct. I, I mean, there's so much in this poll that's interesting, all kinds of issues, but if this is a, this is a snapshot of today, of course, but if this snapshot holds, women are deciding the election in these four key states, and they're deciding it against Donald Trump. Now, there's a lot of ground he can make up. He has a lot of resources. There are a significant number of undecided uh, voters, but the the gender divide was really striking to us. Uh, for instance, in Ohio, the women went for the uh, an unnamed Democratic candidate by 45.6% to 34.4% for Trump. 
Wow. So that's just a, one example. Well, what was amazing to me is that, that, that the women were so decidedly against Trump or for a Democratic candidate, to, any way you want to look at this. But it, it was by wide margins. We're talking 11 to 26 points in the various states where the men were basically within the margin of error. For the come on, guys. Part. We've been waiting for this, right? I mean, we've got a president <laughs> who really doesn't like women. He has shown a very strong disrespect for women. We kept kind of wondering, when are women going to react to that? Think about if this were reversed, if we had a woman president who clearly disrespected men the same way, you'd see a very rabid response by men to throw her out. And and it took a while for women to kind of come around. The whole Me Too movement really took place after mm-hmm. he was elected, and it seems like it's finally happening. And look, for the, the best example, I thought, was, was looking at that Michigan race. Right, in the Senate, the, um, the women broke strongly for the democrat and it was dead even dead even for Mm -hmm. the men right if it were tomorrow would be a dead heat with women it makes it a landslide blowout right well if i could just throw some cold water on everything you said here (laughs) (laughs) um it it's important uh our, our friend lauren copeland at baldwin wallace who's very wise points out that we shouldn't view women as some monolith and that they have found that Party identification is uh, also a big predictor of how people are going to vote. And therefore, we're going to see Republican women voting for Trump. So uh, that's that's one factor. And as I said, there still are a lot of undecideds. It looks like the key is going to be whether the Democratic women are going to be motivated enough to vote because in these findings, we also see a little bit lower motivation on the part of women than men to vote, and whether the Democratic candidate can persuade independent voters to come out and support them. That's interesting what you were saying, that they're less motivated, because you think if they're like for a Democrat, then they'd really want to go out and make sure that they get a change. (laughs) And I don't know if either one of you guys knows this, but from last time with a 45% um, to 34% um, for the Democrat to Trump. What does that compare to in 2016? Do we remember the breakdown then? I know mm. there was a lot of talk about like suburban white women and voting for Trump. And it's something I've literally still never completely understood. Right, but women did vote for Trump right, <laughs> the last right. time around and helped him win the election. So I don't have the figures I mean, in yeah, my yeah, head. It was but, four years ago. But, but it'll be interesting to keep, keep watching. Well, that motivation factor, though, is that you would think it would be up, but um, didn't we just see stories this weekend about, um, you know, the protest and, and marches and so forth that they were smaller numbers? Was that because they're less interested or is that because they felt like the point was made and the weather was really lousy in places like Cleveland? I don't know. That's a good point. I mean, I feel like anything, when it goes on for long enough, it just kind of it becomes status quo. So I think on the motivation question, women in this poll were still motivated just not quite as strongly as the men. Okay, let's maybe that'll <laughs> change in the next eight months, right? Uh, we should point out that the Great Lakes poll is four separate polls in four states, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. BW picked these four because they had all voted for Obama in 2012 and switched to Trump in 2016. They likely will decide this election. 
Rich, are the states mostly uniform in how they respond to the poll? To some degree, if you look at them, the top issue for each uh, three of the states is the economy. That, that goes for Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan. Now, in Ohio, the economy seems to be a, bit, a little bit bigger of an issue than in the other states. But that's the top issue um, provided by the, the respondents to the poll in each of the states. Why the, do, you, the outlier, think, why do you think that is? Why would Ohio have more of a, a focus on the economy than the other three? Perhaps the economy is changing more than the, the other places. I mean, Michigan is an auto-centric state like Ohio, but uh, but Ohio, we've, we've seen some changes both ways. Ohio has, you know, farm country. It has auto parts. And so maybe you really need to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, where these people live that are saying this. With what you know about the Ohio economy, would you think the Ohio focus on the economy is good for Trump or bad for Trump? Uh, depends how they spend it. But if you really look at the numbers, we looked recently at like job growth and Ohio isn't doing as well as the other states. Now, none of these states are, you know, sunbelt states when it comes to growth and jobs and so forth. But Ohio continues to lag the nation and maybe a little bit more so than these other states. In fact, I think since January through the October jobs report, uh, Ohio actually had lost jobs. What What are the other issues you notice some similarities or differences? On? Well, the one difference that pops out is health care pops up as the number one issue in Wisconsin. That's not the case in the other three issues or states where it was the economy. And what's interesting about Wisconsin is that's the only state, if you look at those national maps, where Medicaid was expanded under Obamacare. Uh, all the way across the Northeast and the Midwest, there's only one state where it was not expanded, and that's Wisconsin. So I find that interesting to see. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into maybe why. Uh, but I'm interested to see that health care is the number one issue there now that could be people want the medicaid expanded or maybe it's a big issue because it's been topical and debated that could also be some people think it's a number one issue because want to not expand medicaid it could go either way all right let's talk the horse race now if these states that will decide the election trump needs to get to work things don't look good for him jane right he is lagging in all four states although in ohio he has the most support which tracks with the results of the last election where and, he won by more than eight points in ohio and that's not against biden that's against anybody <laughs> against an unnamed democrat uh, for instance in ohio he's behind 44.3 to 39.4 and the the unnamed democrat in each of the states has almost a, a majority in this poll. In Wisconsin, the unnamed Democrat leads by more than 12 points. So this really isn't going to be a horse race between two candidates. This election seems like it's much more of a referendum on Donald Trump. Could be. But I never underestimate Trump's resources, his ability to campaign, and the Ohio Republican Party. They are a force here. Yeah. And on the Democratic side, I know it's the unnamed candidate, but Biden is the big leader, right? The number two and three are surprising, though. Well, Biden is the number number one in, in each of the states. But, you know, at this point, I don't know how much people are paying attention to the campaigns. And I'm wondering if that could be a product of he's one of the most familiar. Now, of course, Sanders and Warren are pretty familiar, too. But as it stands now, each of the states, it's it's, um, you know, Biden and Sanders uh uh, near the uh, top, Sanders being the leader in Wisconsin, the other states, it's, it's Biden, Warren number three in each state. There is one along those is lines. Is Warren number three in Ohio? I thought Bloomberg was was doing No, he's right. number four, I think, in all the states, right, Rich? Bloomberg is four in all the states. I'm seeing his ads everywhere. <laughs> Although he cracked double digits in Ohio. Oh, maybe that's what it was. Okay. 
And that, that's kind of interesting. Is the, the, these candidates? I don't even know how many debates have been televised now, but they've been spending a lot of time for months and having debates and all these things. And Bloomberg basically arrives and s- says, "I'm really not going to worry about it until we get later in the primary season." Puts a lot of money on TV, and he's in double digits in Ohio. All right. In an, uh, an unusual issue rose in this poll, that of national security. Of course, the poll was being taken in the days following the U.S. assassination of a key Iranian official, which could have affected it. Strangely, people supported the assassination, but they also say they feel less safe with Donald Trump as president. Right. In Ohio, for instance, 43 percent said they felt much safer or somewhat safer, where 47 percent said they felt somewhat are much less safe. Uh, There could be other factors here. The security question was also framed as border security. And we know immigration has been a big driver in people's votes. So that could have played into these results. We'll have to see in in the follow-up polls, presuming they don't happen after other U.S. assassinations of key officials across the world, whether that continues to rise. We did see last time around that health care was the number one thing on people's minds, except for a brief period right around the time Donald Trump was making a lot of hay with immigration, where suddenly that was on top of people's minds, but then health care came back. Right. So what other issues are in the minds of people in these four states? How are they different? Well, in this particular poll, they, they asked fairly specific and, and, and finite number of, they left it open as an other, but you really don't know what the others were. But um, after after the economy, say in Ohio, uh, number two was pretty even with health care and the security. And then on down the line, getting very few responses in comparison to the others were energy issues, education, and women's issues. They were all in single digits where people were- Even though women are-, are- trending against trump their women's issues are not big on the list of why huh well i would think among women issues are more than just women issues too there's, well that's true healthcare. that's true healthcare is a big issue for women right well every issue can be a, an issue for women i was just you know yeah. that's just interesting but but they, they were only allowed on this particular survey they were only allowed to check one box okay. so so they it's like their top issue is what we're looking at okay well another interesting one is the disfavor for the electoral college um you think about the the sentiment for a popular vote that's reflected here as the way to elect a president. Trump, of course, lost the popular vote. He won because of the electoral count. Um, the fact that people seem to be picking up on that is interesting. Yes, it was it was remarkably consistent across all four states. It was uh, right around fifty four percent said that they favor a national popular vote over the electoral college. And it's interesting because they might be sort of expressing something in favor, I mean, against the whole battleground issue. They're, they're in battleground states. Um, so it's, it's kind of Right. These are the people <laughs> who are deciding the election. And if we went to a national popular vote, they wouldn't. And it also seems to, to show, I, well, I don't know, maybe they don't understand that if you, if you went to a national popular vote, you know, the states like Delaware and Rhode Island, they may as well merge with neighbors. They would have no <laughs> political clout. Rich. Well, they but, were, if I, I'm sorry, Rich, but the one thing, they asked people whether they knew who won the popular vote in 2016. And there was a high, people knew that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. And there also seems to be a sentiment in some of these other questions that it, it's a matter of fairness, you know. 
I just wonder if those results would be the same if, if instead of states that had double-digit numbers of electoral votes, if the same survey was conducted in Rhode Island and Wyoming and West Virginia, where they kind of get a disproportionate sh- share of say with the Electoral College, whether we would see that tame, same type of support. Was there a breakout in this poll by Republicans and Democrats on a, that issue? Because I would think Republicans, knowing that Donald Trump would have lost the election if this happened, might favor keeping the Electoral College. But did they break it down that way? They did, and you have to uh, keep in mind that the margin of error is higher once you start getting into these subgroups. But in Ohio, for instance, women favored the national uh, popular vote by 58.2 to 20.3 percent, whereas the men only favored it 48.4 to 41.8 percent. What about by party? Uh, By party, let's see. The uh, Democrats favored it 75.3 to 11.3, and the Republicans actually favored the Electoral College 56.2 to 34.8. So, yeah, you do, as I said, margin of error is higher there, but it's pretty strong. (laughs) It's clearly covered, not covered by that. Right. In 2017, Baldwin-Wallace did a follow-up poll to the presidential election and found that the most significant indicator of how people voted was immigration. The correlation between people who worried about immigration and Trump votes was quite high. What did this poll find out about immigration? Well, it's interesting. People were asked how important various factors were to, to being a true American. And they, they said American ancestry, being native born, and speaking English, and upholding American traditions and customs. Yet when they were asked do immigrants, are they good for the economy? Um, They said yes. And do they harm our culture? They said no. So it's a very contradictory. It's very, it's contradictory. And And I'm not sure how to interpret that. (laughs) I want to know the definition of an American tradition, because didn't we take them all from other places? Like, isn't that the whole point? Well, across some parts of southern Ohio, say in Claremont County and, and, and some counties down that way and through extreme southern Ohio and on through Kentucky and even into Tennessee, it's, it's interesting if you look at census questions over the years where it's open-ended, what, what's your background, where people typically will put Italian, Irish, they're the number one response in many areas is American. All right, one more poll topic. BW asked about social media and wow, people don't trust it. They say they don't get their presidential campaign information through it, but they believe foreign governments can interfere with the election. That's odd. If you don't get your information that way, then why would you worry about others doing it? Maybe it's because they know that they do get some information that way. If you're on social media, you're bombarded by it. Uh, They also say they distrust social media at the same time they say both parties are becoming more extreme, which social media plays a role in because it creates these giant echo chambers of of both sides. Uh, What do we make of all this? About 60% of the people that are on social media that are doing things like Twitter and Facebook, at least according to this poll, say they they, uh, don't trust it. So I guess maybe they're reading it for entertainment. I don't know. Well, is it maybe... They don't want to admit that they they see it and they look at it. I mean, is it embarrassing to be like, I get my news from Twitter? I don't know. <laughs> they and they say they frequently see things that are false 
on there. And yet they and they can pick that out that it's false because <laughs> that would be doing way. But these are really educated poll takers. Right. I, I was surprised. You know, every they asked separately, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter. And it was the same. No, I don't get my campaign information that way. Well, I mean, look, let's think about it. When you go back to the election four years ago, we hadn't had all of the, the news about the attacks on our system through social media. We've had a steady diet of it now. So even even if you're a Trump supporter, if you're not a Trump supporter, you're aware that huge efforts and huge amounts of money have been spent to try and corrupt voters through social media. So I think it's a great sign that they're aware of that. <laughs> I think if you would have asked them these questions four years ago, you probably wouldn't have had such a strong response. It's just when they say they know it's false, you you know, I go mm -hmm. with Laura. How do they know? What are they doing? Have they become educated? Are they looking at the sources of the news, which everybody advocates you do when you find nonsense on social media? I hope BW continues to, to yeah. mine this. So are these... What is the breakdown of like age um, groups in this poll? Is it uh, supposed to be representative of the population in each state? Representative of the voting age population in okay. each state. So, you know, it, it follows along the lines of, you know. So we've got the whole We don't have 14-year-olds yeah, in But 18, <laughs> 18 to, to 100 then. Right. And then they also took care to make sure that it, it wasn't too many people say in urban areas uh, okay. and rural areas and they looked at things like that and, and gender and education levels to try to make this poll reflective or at least respondents to it reflective of the states in general. And then do they go back to these same people for the next three polls or are we going to have new people? The, theoretically new people. I guess somebody by chance might get okay. asked again but no they don't go back to these. We're not going to be tracking the same people on through and this is the first of four polls. Are they tracking the same issues? Some of the issues will be the same. Some of them they'll use to delve into other issues as we move along. They hope the second poll will be done in the spring at a time when it'll be more clear who the Democratic candidate is. So if the Democratic candidate's clear, that changes a little bit of the questions. What and they then, can ask. Then they'll come back with two more in October <laughs> and November. Yeah, will it be clear? That's going to happen. <laughs> All right. We do have news that is not about the poll, but in keeping with one of our poll topics, it's about the status of women. Maybe 2020 will be the year of the woman. Finally. The Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution was recently ratified by Virginia, the needed 38th state to ratify the amendment. And Jane, we had a story this week about what Ohio did with the ERA way back in the day. Yes, Sabrina Eaton took a look at what happened during the debate here in Ohio, where Ohio became the 33, 33rd state to ratify it back in 1974. But now we have the situation where Virginia just ratified, but people some people say well it's too late the the deadline has expired there's a big dispute about that whether whether it's too late to get it ratified and some of the states that did ratify it backed out of that so there's all, there are all it? kinds of questions about well, whether this do you think ohio would ratify this today given no. our political climate you want to know i don't i don't, I think don't. So. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that they the, actually ratified it back in, in 74. I, I know that there were strong arguments against it because some of some of the opponents thought that this could open the door to more abortion rights because limiting abortion rights could be seen as sex discrimination or it could interfere with religious liberty. The, the, the arguments were really interesting. All right, let's get back to the uh, November election. We might have a question on the ballot about raising Ohio's minimum wage 
to $13 an hour by 2025 from its current $8.70. Who's pushing for this? There are two unions that are so far behind it, the Service Employees International Union and the Ohio Education Association, both of which have resources and shouldn't be taken lightly. So is this a get-out-the-vote thing? It's the strategy here to get low-paid people to show up and vote in the presidential election, figuring they're all going to vote Democratic? If so, might we see the conservatives come up with a question on the ballot that will drive Republican turnout? Well, I don't know that it's solidified so much as a get-out-the-vote issue. I think their motivation is they want to raise the minimum wage, and they picked that figure because they see public sentiment in support of it. That's not to say that won't, I mean, that didn't influence their thinking. It could be influencing their thinking. And the Republicans, we haven't, we don't have anything on our radar yet that's a strong indication of, you know, like, say, the gay marriage issue in the previous presidential election yet. But there's a history here, right? There's a history here. I, I would imagine if the Republicans see this one heading to the ballot and they still have to get through the hurdles with um, Dave Yost verifying that their summary is accurate and all that stuff. Right. But but I would you could see the Republicans worrying about that, trying to come up with a gun mm-hmm. thing abortion. or an abortion yeah, thing you, or you something. You definitely could. I mean, definitely. the abortion thing cuts both ways because you could bring out a lot of more Democratic votes to stop it. But, but if they picked some kind of... Like religious freedom or yeah, something like that, Yeah, exactly. Maybe. That you could end up just to, just to counter it because... Everything that's going on in Ohio, all the voter purge stuff, it's all aimed at dealing with who votes. There's still found, time. What I found interesting was looking back, it was 2009 when, when Ohio Ohioans voted to change the Constitution to put the minimum wage at that time just a few cents ahead of the federal. Now now it's about a buck and a half or so ahead because it, it changes by inflation every year. But what surprised me looking back, there was all the usual opposition to it. That thing passed in Ohio 57% to, to 43%, so it passed fairly easily. Different Mm. time, though. One last election story. Barack Obama and Eric Holder are targeting Ohio to try and redraw congressional lines to boost Democratic representation in Congress. It makes sense in Ohio, which is pretty evenly divided politically, but because of the gerrymandered district lines, is heavily represented by Republicans. What's their strategy here? Well, They want to get more Democratic representation into the state legislature. Republicans have a supermajority, and the more influence that Democrats can have over this process, the better off they're going to be. And without a supermajority, it would be just a little more difficult for the Republicans to ram through a map even under this new reformed process. Okay, they might also target our two Ohio Supreme Court races? Yes, This is a real chance for the Democrats because we have two competitive races. And if the Democrats won both of them, they would have a majority on the Supreme Court, which they haven't had for a while. And a disputed map could end up before that court. We've we've had money plowed into Ohio Supreme Court races before. I would imagine that that if conservatives realize this this. Supreme Court could switch that way that we might see huge amounts of oh, money. Oh, they're gearing spent. up for it. Trust me. They're gearing up for it. But, you know, in um, 2018, the two Democrats uh, beat two Republicans. Yeah, I know. Oh, look at that. We're still in our first segment and we're halfway through the podcast. Thank you so much, Jane and Rich, for all of the perspective. You're welcome. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Emily Bamforth. Hi, good to be here. So Emily, Cleveland is the worst major city in the country for an African-American woman. Your story on this is probably the most disturbing local story I've seen so far this year. Compared to all the other major cities, we have the worst situation, educationally, economically, whatever, for African-American women. Where does this terrible news come from? So this comes from a recent publication by City Lab um, in partnership with Junia Howell, who is a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Junia had created a report like this for Pittsburgh, and they worked on expanding it, looking at this particular metric for... I think 42 different cities across the United States, or metropolitan areas, rather. So some of the indicators that they looked at, which were interesting, included infant mortality, uh, high school graduate graduation rates, uh, wage gaps, um, just a wide range of factors that uh, I think there were hundreds of them, and then looked at the variability within them, uh, Junia Howell is now uh, being paid to do reports, full reports for both the, Cin- the city of Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. Well, if I were an elected leader around here, I'd be really embarrassed by this. Like the city had failed. The story basically says that despite all of our nonprofits and all the talk about providing lift to the disadvantaged, nothing we've done has worked. We're dead last. What are you hearing now that this news is out? Nothing giant in public. I think there was widespread panic in Pittsburgh when uh, Junia Howell had released uh, that report. Uh, And there were a lot of community conversations that had happened. These could be happening behind closed doors. I think that there has been more of a conversation about inequality in Cleveland, especially over the past couple of years. But I called uh, some leading organizations who do work in this field, and they're saying, hey, we do work in this field every day. We've been doing this work for a long time. This isn't a new issue. This isn't even going. It, it didn't even start 30 years ago. Yeah, but what Laura said, I mean, it, it, if I would be embarrassed to say I've been doing work on this for 30 years because we are terrible. We suck. We're dead last. I mean, right. if I spent 30 years at something and, and frankly made it worse, I would not feel good about what I'm trying to do. What? I mean, you mentioned that there are efforts underway to, to, to try and deal with it. The problem is none of those have borne any fruit. Right. Well, let's let's look at it this way. So the Urban League of Cleveland, the YWCA, those people have been doing work on this for a long time. They've been doing it consistently. But if you look at organizations like the Greater Cleveland Partnership, these leading business organizations, they have only just started talking about this in the past couple of years, and they haven't made a lot of movement on it. And or it's, any. Yeah. Well, I'm being kind. But it just takes people outside of the the YWCA and the Urban League. It takes the entire city to work on all of these things. All right. Well, the, the cities that were at the top of the list, who are they? And is there anything we can learn from them about improving our deplorable condition? So uh, up at the top of the list were not exactly the people that you'd expect. Uh, you didn't see a New York up there consistently. You didn't see... Uh, d- other major cities like Austin at the top of there. You saw Washington, D.C. You saw Boston on many of the lists, except for health. You saw Baltimore. Um, and also a big hotspot, 
was North Carolina, as City Lab pointed out. So Washington, D.C., it can be attributed in good part to federal jobs. Right. It's all the government jobs. They're right. an outlier. You really can't compare anybody else to them. What about what about Boston and North Carolina? North Carolina, I wouldn't North have Carolina. Expected. Yeah, that was surprising to me too. Especially um you always expect bigger, more wealthy cities to appear at the top of these lists, especially when you're not adjusting for uh, income or cost of living, sorry. Uh, but in North Carolina, there are historical black colleges and universities. They serve a really important role in uh, North Carolina and have spurred a lot of growth in the business communities there. Also, both in Boston and in Charlotte, in Raleigh, you're seeing a big spike in um, technology and entrepreneurship, which people have been trying to push forward here. Um, but it kind of is a perfect equation in North Carolina. You've got Wake Forest, you've got UNC, you've got a lot of um, entrepreneurial growth and some programs that are specifically focused in boosting black women in that area. Um, black women are opening more businesses than ever before and are the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs in the country. Well, obviously jobs is a huge uh, role to play in this. And I imagine that this kind of survey makes recruiting people for the open jobs in Northeast Ohio more difficult. If you're an African American, why would you want to come here and bring your family? I think that what has to be done is these companies need to look internally and make sure that they are recruiting black women and they are paying them equally. Because mm -hmm. you see, and the federal uh, bank here has released research on this, there's been talk of it for a while, but there's a huge wage gap here, especially for black women who are paid even less uh, than black men. And so it, it really takes looking at putting jobs out there for black women, putting jobs out there that actually pay. That's what's going to get people to stay in Cleveland and maybe get more black women to Cleveland. Those stories like this certainly don't help with any recruiting efforts. Uh, you had another story this week that also spoke to disparities. Some of Ohio's highest ranked colleges are enrolling low income students at rates way way below the national average. We're not going to improve conditions for African-American women living in poverty if we don't take advantage of the federal programs aimed at helping them go to college. So let's talk about that. How do we know our colleges are below average? It's important to know that this report comes from an advocacy group called Education Reform Now. They took time to look at first-year full-time uh, students and see what share of those first-time uh, full-time student freshman classes uh, were Pell Grant students. Pell Grants go to, they're basically um, federal grants that go to the neediest students, even though uh, most households are under 60,000 in combined income who receive these, uh, most of them are closer to actually 20,000 who get them oh. um, or in any significant amount. So if you look at this, you're thinking just what is happening because you looked at this report and ohio state had a very very low percentage it was in the teens um you look at oberlin they're at nine you look at um kenyan and and they're around there as well case western didn't do particularly well either and they've dropped in recent years so basically this report focused on that freshman pell grant rate um 
which you know what but the colleges disagreed with fervently as a representation of how they're serving low-income students and what's the national but, average 30-ish. Okay. So, so what's their explanation for why they're not using the Pell Grants, though? Well, Ohio State uh, pointed out that the data cut off early. And right after the data cut off, which was one or two years ago, they launched a program specifically dedicated to Pell Grant students, which basically they guarantee that if you receive a Pell Grant and after all of your other con- expected family contribution and... Um, state money, so the Ohio Opportunity Grant, uh, they bridge the gap for you. Um, And on top of that, their regional campuses are open enrollment. So if you graduate from an Ohio high school, you can go to a regional campus. So that has skyrocketed the percentage. Even though it's not quite at the national average yet, it's very quickly approaching the Ohio average that's detailed in this report. Um, Especially with the private schools, they're taking issue in the fact that it's first year full time. So a lot of these low-income students or um, students from minority backgrounds, they are coming in as transfer students. So Mm -hmm. they come from a community college or a different school, um, or they're working part-time. They're balancing jobs. They're non-traditional students. And these colleges are saying, hey, first of all, you're not counting so many of these students that we serve, and it's really just underrepresenting what's happening here in Ohio. And then they're also saying, and you're not looking at the other financial aid that we give these students. So at a really expensive school like Miami, these people could look to this Pell Grant share and say, why would I even apply there? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get any money to go. But when you apply to Miami, you get your your Pell stuff. You get the federal... Um, federal grants, state grants, but then you also get financial aid from the school and they have given out a significant amount of financial aid. All right. So we're just going to have to see if these uh, rates imp- um, improve in the future, if, if the colleges are saying they're they're doing everything they're doing. Um, another good, <laughs> not so great news story for Cleveland. He did a piece this week on the reaction of the Hispanic community to the departure of Bishop Nelson J. Perez from Cleveland after less than three years here. He was our first Hispanic bishop, which was pretty important to that community. So what did what did they say? Basically, they it, it was bittersweet because people from here, even though uh, Bishop Perez is not from here, he's from Philadelphia. Uh, as soon as somebody comes into the Cleveland community and people like him, they attach themselves and say, "This is our own." Um, especially for the Hispanic community who is seeing themselves represented for the first time in their diocese. So uh, Bishop Perez speaks Spanish. He was able to kind of connect with the Hispanic community here in that way. Um, But also he would speak out on issues of immigration. He would go visit people. He would go to different uh, shelters and and talk to and into people's homes as well and actually talk to people. Um, But that's kind of where the disappointment comes from, because after about two and a half years in Cleveland, uh, leaders are thinking, hey, he's finally got his footing. And then he leaves for Philadelphia. Well, and he's going home. I mean, right. The Pope named him the new archbishop there. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a great guy. He's my age. I grew up over in, near Philly, too, so we had a very similar frame of reference. But it sounds like the Pope wanted his more liberal approach to replace the retiring archbishop, who was pretty conservative and not in keeping with where the Pope has been trying to lead the church. It's a very pivotal time for the Catholic Church, which is one of the reasons that the Cleveland Diocese was so excited to get 
um, prayers in the first place. But uh, the archbishop had led the church there through closings. He had led them through sexual abuse scandals. And he was very conservative. He was very vocal against same-sex marriage. He was very vocal um, about being pro-life. But uh, And even though um, Bishop Perez does stay in line with the church in, on some of those things, being pro-life especially, he is a much he is a very warm person. He's known for being a warm, humorous person. He's a, kind of a hometown guy. And uh, it, it kind of represents that more, um, I hate to say progressive, but more liberal view that's coming about in the Catholic Church. So any word on who's going to be next in Cleveland? We had two pretty long bishops before Perez, and I wonder whether the Pope will look at that for our next one. I don't think there are any rumors yet, uh, but we'll know pretty soon. Uh, Perez is leaving in the middle of February. He'll be installed on February 18th in Philadelphia. So they're going to have to get moving on that unless they uh, appoint someone in the interim, which I don't think they normally do in this situation. So I think talking to Hispanic leaders here, they hope that the warm welcome will indicate to the Pope that we need someone who can speak Spanish and is along the same lines. Um, it'll be interesting to see. And um, a lot of the comments I've seen have been saying we need somebody from Cleveland. Well, that would be cool. All right. Go cuddle a puppy, Emily. You need a break after all this bad news. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks. If you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Mary Kilpatrick. Hi. So in a region that has the highest level of pride in its libraries, this is a punch to the gut. The Cleveland library staff looks likely to go on strike. Yeah, absolutely. So the library actually has two unions, one with its uh, its librarians, its library assistants, custodians, and then another union that represents its safety workers. So both unions have been without a contract since the end of the year. But talks with the librarian union have gone uh, they haven't gone so well. So they've been in talks since September, and uh, it, it looks like management and the librarians aren't really able to come to some sort of agreement on this. The librarians say they want the library to be safer, they have concerns about staffing, and uh, the library management says it, it all comes down to money. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, right now, the librarian union has said that if they can't reach an agreement by February 4th, they're going on strike. Didn't Cleveland voters approve a tax increase for the library in the last couple of years? This can't be the library crying poor. No, absolutely not. Actually, the library says that the starting salaries of uh, its librarians and library workers is very competitive when you look at it compared to other cities across the state. They say that uh, I think the average starting salary for a new union worker is between $17 and $24. So the library is saying, you know, we're paying our folks pretty well right now. This could be pretty devastating for a lot of Cleveland school kids who use the library branches as their safe spaces in the hours after school and before their parents get home. Are library officials going to try to keep the branches open during the strike? So what the library's told me is every part of the city will be taken care of. There will be some sort of library resources, some sort of branch open. 
That being said, the library has made it very clear that they will have to close some branches and some services will be closed. Certainly, they have emphasized the fact that the people who are going to be most affected by this are the school kids who go to the library after school and tutoring services and, you know, computer resources and all those things that those kids rely on um, may not be available at their local library. Well, if some kid gets killed or seriously hurt who would have been in the library, it's going to feel like the striking workers are going to be uh, uh, to blame. Uh, um, go ahead. But this has been a, a long-fought battle on social media. The libraries took a lot of cri- criticism for arguing the case on the official library social media accounts, and the criticism seems to have some validity. What does the library say about that? So the library says that it is just trying to get out information about this strike and inform people what could happen if there's a strike. And they are allowed to do that. What they're not allowed to do uh, under state law is oppose uh, any sort of union action. And so the question is whether or not any of their communications about the strike have had some sort of political opposition tone. The library says, no, we're just trying to put out the facts about, you know, the strike. But uh, there was a a tidal wave of criticism that they got from their own patrons uh, on social media about sort of their communications relating to the strike. Bernie Sanders came out in support of their strike. Have have library workers in, in the Cleveland system ever gone on strike before? So the last time they went on strike was in 2004. Which is not really that long ago. Um, is this the latest reason that we should stop having all these different library systems and just merge into one? You also wrote the story this week on Cuyahoga County's library system, which was ranked, again, as the best in the nation, 10th year in a row. Why don't we just combine all these? So Cleveland has more branches per square mile than the county does, so combining them could cost the city some branches, which could have some devastating effects for some of the neighborhoods who rely on these uh, resources. It's really the sort of hub of their their neighborhood, especially you know in, in poor communities where they, they don't have a lot of resources. Yeah, that's a pretty good argument. Uh, you had another story uh, that, that shocked no one. Michigan hates Ohio, and Ohio hates Michigan. Where did that scintillating finding come from? Yeah, it was a really interesting story off of Instagram. There's this guy on Instagram who is a professional chart maker. Um, He makes these fantastic charts, and one of the charts that he made was basically polling his uh, Instagram followers uh, to see which state they enjoy hating the most. And Ohio picked Michigan, and Michigan picked Ohio, and I have a hunch that it may have to do with college football, but... Who knows? Maybe maybe there's some deep-seated hatred that I'm just not aware of. Chris, I was giving you a hard time about this this week because you live in Ohio but spend a lot of time in Michigan with your son and grandson. So are you taking sides? I, I can say this. Michigan has better drivers. It must be all the auto industry employees. But uh, seriously, what is your take? No, really. I've lived in a bunch of places. Ohio <laughs> has the worst drivers. Michigan has some of the best. When I lived in Florida, whenever there was a traffic jam, you knew you would see an Ohio license plate at the head of it. And Michigan people just get where they need to go. I'm digressing. You're right. I do spend a lot of time in both states. And what I find is that people in both states are about the most friendly, decent souls I've met in the country. Now, maybe my perspective is skewed because I did grow up in New Jersey. 
but I don't get a sense of hate from people in either state. The, Mary's right. The sports rivalry is hot, or it used to be when Michigan could actually play football. But this idea of hate, I don't, I don't see it. If you want a generality, Michigan seems to be, seems to me to be more of an outdoorsy kind of crowd, and Ohio seems better read. All right, then. I think you've managed to insult us all equally. <laughs> I personally have no quibble with Michigan. I love the Pure Michigan Tourism campaign. But I do have to say that one of my Michigan friends has a shirt with a shape of Ohio on it that says worst state ever. So I see the animosity there. Mary, other states, um, speaking of New Jersey, who does New Jersey hate? New Jersey hates everyone. <laughs> I just said nice things about Ohio and Michigan. That's not fair. And uh, Florida, which I believe Chris also lived in, uh, hated itself. Well, when I lived in Florida, I didn't like living there, so I could actually see that. <laughs> uh, Hawaii actually uh, hated no one. They have they have no quibbles, which you know makes sense. It's Hawaii, right? It's seventy degrees yeah. every day of the year. Yeah. No, no time for hatred. Just yeah. Like thing. All right. Well, in a moment, thank you so much, Mary, for joining us. In a moment, we'll talk about Wonderstruck. What is Wonderstruck? Stay with us on this week in the CLE to find out. Welcome to the podcast, Annie Nikoloff and Mike Norman. Hey. Good to be here. All right, Annie. So what is Wonderstruck and why did so many people read your story about it? Yeah, so Wonderstruck, it is the first year it is known as Wonderstruck, but it is actually the same music festival as Live. Uh, that music festival has been going on since 2016 in Northeast Ohio. So new name, new location, but the same festivities that you can expect. Yes, it's uh, one of Cleveland's most popular uh, summer festivals. In fact, we're sort of seen it as Cleveland's marquee event for the summer now in terms of festival music. Um, they've got a really good um, sense of uh, a, a successful demographic that they try to draw. It's uh, it's uh, 20 to 40 f- families involved, family-friendly. Um, last year they had Sheryl Crow and Hozier as, um, as headliners. This year it's kind of even cooler and maybe skewing a little younger, right, Annie? Yeah, um, I've been going to this fest since I was a wee intern at Cleveland.com <laughs> back in 2016. That was one of my first assignments I had. Uh, I covered it every year since. It's really grown. Uh, it's attracted a lot of young people, a lot of families, really family-friendly event. And they just keep getting bigger and bigger acts. Like Mike said, Cheryl Crow is the biggest yet. So well, That cracks me up that you said it's family-friendly because I saw your kid prices in there. I was like, I'm not taking my kids to like a big concert. Also, you're saying it's skewing younger. And then I was like, ooh, Third Eye Blind. They were cool when I was in high school. I love Third Eye Blind. Guilty okay. pleasure. Right, good. <laughs> I should point out that Annie is an entertainment reporter and Mike is the entertainment <laughs> editor. That's why, why they're here. Why Wonderstruck? I mean, Laurel Live made sense, right? It's live music on the Laurel campus. But where did this come from? Uh, this The Elevation Group started its second festival in the Midwest region last year in Columbus and called it Wonder Bus. It was a two-day festival um, near the campus of Ohio State. They had a lot of success with it, and they decided that they wanted to take this brand of wonder and broaden it and... Um, maybe put festivals in other cities in the Midwest. They looked at uh, Cleveland to be Wonderland. Get it? Oh, I like it. The Wonderland. Unfortunately, somebody already had that name somewhere. Somewhere their lawyers told them. So they went with Wonderstruck. Um, The move from Laurel uh, School to Lakeland is really about... um, Lakeland Community College. Lakeland Community College is really about on-site parking. So when it was at Laurel Live, they had a lot of parking 
outside of the venue and you had to be bussed into the venue. And in today's day and age, that's a major downer for a lot of people. They want to be closer to where things are. Well, and I spoke with Denny. Um, he's the Denny Young, the owner of Elevation Group, who puts on Wonderstruck Festival. And he said that, you know, Lorelei was really lucky in the four years that it ran that they never had rain. They never had to evacuate. Imagine having to evacuate with all those shuttles like you wouldn't be able to get to your car right away. So the move, it's, it's really in the name of safety and accessibility. I think it's a good move for the festival. Yeah, somebody could have been thunderstruck. Uh, (laughs) how many people have attended in the past has it been or past has it been growing every year it it has um i think they topped 15 to twenty thousand for the first time last year Mm -hmm. so they get nice sized crowds particularly on saturday um and, and it really depends on who the headliner is so you know when hosier is there it's crowded when cheryl crow is there it's crowded maybe less so during the the daytime parts where the you know the lesser known bands are mm-hmm. but um it's profitable and unlike like in kaya which was the big festival downtown uh, on mall b a couple of years ago um it it draws a lot of people because of the vibe i think people in cleveland uh you know it, it, it skews Excuse suburban, excuse uh, family. Well, what is the demographic of the audience? Is it younger? Does it come from all over Northeast Ohio? Does it come from Columbus and beyond? And what really did the organizers do to tap into what you were just talking about? I mean, in Kaya, never going to happen again or it doesn't look likely because it wasn't that successful. But this thing has been more successful every year. What are they doing that, that is different? I think they have a really good sense of, you say you wouldn't bring your kids to the festival because it costs, you know, $30 or they might not like it, but it feels like a fair. It feels like a, a family fun fair. So they have great food, great concessions, lots of games for the kids to play. Then they have acts that range from acts that younger people in their teens and in their early 20s would like to older acts that mom and dad might like, or even grandma and grandpa, like Sheryl Crow and Third Eye Blind. <laughs> um, they're very good at marketing to that sort of suburban white demographic, and I think that's why they've been able to be successful. And I'll say, too, I think a big key to their success has just been their consistency. That first year when I went, it was not sold out. It was not crowded. People didn't even know what Lorelei was. But it's really grown to become a presence. People understand that this happens every summer. Even though it's moving location and changing the name, people still have an idea of what it is. Um, it's just that consistency that's key that Inkaya might not have had so much. Quite, well, a, feat, quite a feat, actually, to draw more than 10,000 people a day to the campus of a school that not many people know where it's at. So right. they have a very good marketing marketing uh, plan. Uh, and Denny Young has been involved in uh, music promotion for 30 years. He started at Belkin Productions when he was a kid, moved to IMG. They got a lot of uh, experience with event marketing. Well, the reason I would not bring my kids to a concert is because if I'm going to a concert, I want to enjoy myself. But anyway... Um, so yeah. I, I know Third Eye Blind. I don't know a lot of these other bands. For people who don't know anything about them but are wondering about attending, who are the comparables? 
Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, Brittany Howard, you might not recognize her solo name, but she's actually the singer of Alabama Shakes, which is this really popular blues rock band. I think they've won like five Grammys at this point. And I will say, I think Brittany Howard is the biggest get for this festival. She put out what I think is the album of the year from 2019, uh, her first solo record. She's just so critically acclaimed, really incredible singer. Very excited about that. Um, I think they've got some good, solid indie pop and indie rock bands. Portugal the Man, a couple of years ago, they put out a single called Feel It Still, which won a Grammy Award. Uh, it was really popular hit song. I'm sure you'd recognize it if it was on the radio. Uh, same thing for Walk the Moon. Oh, they, yes. yes. They, even they are on my playlist. <laughs> uh, but Walk the Moon, Shut Up and Dance With Me. I mean, what an iconic song. They played at Wonderbus Festival uh, last summer, the Columbus equivalent of Wonderstruck and it was so packed for their performance I think they're going to draw a lot of people mm -hmm. and they're from Cincinnati so kind of a cool Ohio band and I think of Monsters and Men is comparable to like Mumford and Sons oh. kind of that folk rock vibe yeah. uh, and then um, Third Eye Blind semi-charmed semi life. life you can sing along <laughs> All right, it should be a good show, and I hope they get good weather. We'll ask Rich Exner to research how often the weather is ideal on those dates. Thanks for your time, Annie and Mike. Thank you. Good to be here. Time to wrap this up, Laura. We're a little disjointed, I think, because we recorded this over two days. A busy week forces us into that position once in a while. Of course, we had lots to talk about with the Baldwin-Wallace poll. I'm a little surprised that our most popular story out of the poll was about the revulsion for the Electoral College. I thought the gender divide, with women rising to determine this election, would be the hot one. Oh, yes. It's shocking when a story about women doesn't get as much attention <laughs> as it should. I'm intrigued by the findings, though, and looking forward to seeing what the future polls are going to show. All right, before we sign off, I want to mention a story Joey Morona did this week. As I mentioned earlier, I grew up outside Philadelphia in South Jersey, and it turns out that a major Philadelphia figure from my childhood was from Cleveland, and I never knew it. He died last weekend, and I was shocked to learn that his funeral was this week, about a mile from where I now live. I'm betting that almost no one listening to this podcast knows who Gene London was, but they should. It's another example of how much Cleveland is given to the world outside Northeast Ohio. So, Gene London was a local television star for children in Philly in the 1960s and 70s. His shtick was that he worked in a general store. He'd put on his apron to start each show. He'd sweep up while talking to kids. He drew pictures and sang songs. He featured cartoons. He was someone that many thousands of Philly area kids would visit with each day, and we all lined up deep to meet him for his personal appearances. He was 88 when he died, and then he came home to be buried. People in Cleveland should know that one of its native sons meant so much to a few generations of kids some 400 miles away. That makes at least two big Philly references in this podcast, Bishop Perez and Gene London, and I guess we can add in Jersey for a third. <laughs> all right, that's a wrap. Thanks to Jane, Rich, Emily, Mary, Annie, and Mike. And thank you, Laura, for your work each week to make this podcast interesting. Thank goodness we have interesting journalists who make it easy. This week in the CLE is the podcast analysis and discussion of the news by the reporters and editors at cleveland.com. It is published on Thursdays. Make sure to check back on Saturday for our weekly bonus episode in which we ask the lingering questions about the week's major news.